I would highly recommend uh, Fouad's material to you. I looked into that a little bit this week and, and found it to be very helpful. Well, in preparation for the, uh, this morning, um, my heart was really rekindled um, uh, for the people of Islam. I had the opportunity in college uh, to spend some time in, in, in Kazakhstan. I spent a summer there and, and got to know Islamic culture and met some neat friends there. And then um, I spent a couple, another summer later, I, I spent it in Turkey, um, another Islamic country. And um, again, some neat friendships and, and began to, um, to really get to know these people. And so my heart this week has just been kind of rekindled um, for this people group. You may have a coworker, you may have a friend, um, you may have a, a neighbor that's a Muslim. Growing up, I had a friend, uh, uh, one of my best friends, his name was Amir, and uh, he was an, a devout Muslim young man. And uh, I would often see his religion lived out, and I, I thought very respectfully of him because of his devotion um, to Islam. That said, I didn't grow up a Muslim, and uh, I don't stand before you today knowing everything there is to know about Islam. Um, you might be a Muslim here today, and uh, I just want to say welcome to you, and uh, thank you for coming. And uh, I want you to know my intent, everyone, I want you to know my intent this morning is to, uh, to, to speak very respectfully um, and very accurately um, about Islam and how it differs and how it uh, is similar to Christianity. In order to understand Islam, I think it's really important to understand its roots, and specifically to understand the life of Muhammad. Um, Muhammad was, was um, Islam's most uh, important prophet, still is today. Muhammad was the, the founder of Islam. Um, so what we're going to do this morning is this. We're going to spend some time looking deeply into the 22 most influential years of Muhammad's life. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, okay, what are the basic beliefs and what are the kind of the core practices of, of Islam? So I want to take you back. In order to do that, I want to take you back to 600 A.D. Now, at this time in, in Saudi Arabia, there were many Arab tribes. Now, these tribes were ruled by different lords. There wasn't a, a centralized government. So politically, things were not unified. Um, there were uh, business that was done between the tribes, as you can imagine, in order to make a living. But there were also all of these tribes. There was a lot of warring that was done um, between the, the tribes. There was a lot of conflict. At this time in Saudi Arabia, the, the spiritual land, landscape was very polytheistic. Um, there was the worship of, of over 250 pagan gods. At this time, know too, though, that Christianity and Judaism was, was on the forefront. Um, these religions were known in this part of the world. Arabs had heard about our prophets. The prophets that you read about in your Old Testament, Arabs had heard about those. That said, at this time in the Arab world, there was not unity spiritually. There wasn't one particular book that everyone was going to. There wasn't a, a set of practices that everyone was practicing. There was rampant religion. It was all over. But that all began to change in 610 A.D. Muhammad was born in 570 A.D., 570 years after the birth of Christ. For Muhammad, both of his parents, they died when he was growing up. In 595 A.D., Muhammad uh, uh, married a woman named Kadaji. She was a wealthy woman. She had a, a position of prominence in the Arab tribe. And, and Muhammad, he, he, he married her, and some scholars would say that she was a Christian, depending on who you read. In 610 A.D., at the age of 40, Muhammad, now he's a successful businessman. He's living in, in the city of, of Mecca. And he's, he's spending some time in this cave and he's meditating and he's thinking about the things of life and, and religious things. And he, he went home, he left the cave, he went home to his cousin and to his wife and he said, I've seen a vision. And he was terrified. And his wife said to him, hey, maybe you shouldn't be so afraid. She said, maybe Muhammad, maybe you are a prophet. 
And so for the next two years, Muhammad continued to go to this place of meditation. He continued to have these, these visions, these times where he would hear words from, from heaven. And, and, and over time, they began to, to kind of write those down. And this went on really in relative secret for about two years. It was between Muhammad and his cousin and his wife. But after about two years, Muhammad began to talk to the people of, Me- of Mecca about the things that he, that he was hearing, about the things that he felt like God was saying to him. And as a result, as you can imagine, he gathered a, a following of people. Now, depending on, on how you interpret history, some would say that it wasn't Muhammad's desire initially to start another religion. Rather, Muhammad saw himself as another prophet. Just like he vaguely knew about Abraham, he had heard about Moses and Jesus, he saw himself as another voice, as another messenger of God, of the one true God. So early on, there was no desire more than likely to convert Jews or, or Christians to Islam. Rather, there was probably a desire to look at this polytheistic culture and to say, you know what, the Jews and the Christians have this figured out. They have one true God. We need to move the rest of this polytheistic culture in that direction. Because Muhammad saw himself at that time as a prophet to the Arab people. Let me show you a verse from the the Quran that supports this notion that Muhammad, he didn't see much conflict between the Jews and the Christians initially. It says this in, in, in the Quran. It says, do not argue with the, the followers of earlier revelation. In, in, in the Quran, they're referred to as the people of the book. That would be Christians or Jews. Otherwise, then, is in a most kindly manner, meaning friendly debate's okay, but, but not beyond that. It says, we believe in that which has been bestowed from on high upon as well as that which has been bestowed upon you. Our God and your God is one, and unto him we surrender. Another evidence of this would be that, that early on when Muhammad had his people pray, he had them pray facing Jerusalem. Because to Muhammad, Jerusalem was the, it was the holy city. Jerusalem was the holy city. It was the, the place that, that he knew about. It was the place of where Moses and Abraham and Jesus had received revelation from God. And so in Moses' mind, he sees himself, he sees what he's doing as an extension of what God had already done to previous generations. Now, one of the things that is uh, commendable about Muhammad is, is this, is he, it really bothered him in the Arabic culture at that time, the injustices that were done to the, to the poor and to the oppressed. And so Muhammad was the kind of person that he stood up for that. And, and as you can imagine, that gained him a following. The people that he was, um, um, you know, supporting, the people that he was backing up, the people that he was speaking for, they loved him. But the people that were monopolizing society, the people that were abusing, that they were oppressing, they hated Muhammad. And the result in, 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 in 616, there arose a persecution in Mecca against Muhammad. They passed a law that said that no one holding to the teachings of Muhammad could um, uh, marry someone, uh, no one holding to the teachings of, of Muhammad, you could, you could marry that person, nor could you do business with them. There was a boycott, it was a, it was a law, it was a boycott against Muhammad and his followers. As a result, fast forwarding a little bit, in 1622 AD, he and about 70 families moved north to the city of Medina. Now, Medina was about 250 miles north of Mecca. In Medina, Muhammad became a political figure. Now, in the, the surrounding area around Medina, there were, there were Jewish tribes. There were, there were people, there were Jewish tribes all around the, um, the city of Medina. And they did not do war with Muhammad. There wasn't, they were, early on, there wasn't hostility between Muhammad and between these people. 
Now, it's likely that during this time, this is when Muhammad began to learn the stories of the scriptures. It's likely it's recorded that, that he was even brought into one of those tribes that he was befriended. And he began to understand stories, the stories of, of, of Abraham. And he began to probably understand at that time that Abraham had two sons. He didn't have just Isaac, but he also had Ishmael. And in that tradition, it, it was believed that Ishmael had actually migrated to the land where Muhammad was living. Now, this was big news for, for Muhammad. Because Muhammad is looking at it and he's going, oh, wow, this is a, a tie to the prophet Abraham. But not only that, this was incredible news because the one true God, the one true God that had revealed himself to the Jews, the one true God that had revealed himself to the Christians and to the Arabs, and to the Arabs now through him, he's thinking, he's thinking that, whoa, not only is there like the, 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 he moved here, there's physical proximity, but if Ishmael actually spent time where I'm living in, in the area of Mecca and Medina, then there's a bloodline between me, Muhammad, and Abraham. This was huge. This was huge because this was the one true God. The Jews had Moses, the Christians had Jesus, and now for Muhammad, the Arabs had him. The Jews and the Christians, as you can imagine, they didn't accept this prophet. They didn't accept, accept this self-proclaimed prophet. They rejected him. They didn't like how he, he mingled the stories of the Old Testament, the prophets that you know about, that you hear about. They didn't like how he mingled that with, with the visions that he had received. If you, if you look in the Quran um, and you read stories uh, about the, the Old Testament prophets, they're, they're not the same. And, and the Jews and the Christians at the, th- that time, they didn't like it and they rejected him. In 624, two years later, a very significant thing Happened. Now, now just remember though, by now, he's got a following, right? The people that have been oppressed, he's spoken for them, he's given them a voice. And so he's got a following. And so something very significant happened one day during, during prayer, the normal thing that he was leading the people in. He announced that they would no longer face Jerusalem. From this point on, his people would face Mecca. This would be a break from the past. This was huge. Because what he was saying by doing this was that no longer are we seeing ourselves associated with Judaism or Christianity. And from that time on, there were some very significant battles that took place in the Arab land. Battles that ended up giving Islam its foundation and ultimately prominence back in the city of Mecca. Islam was established. Muhammad died in 632 A.D., And now, as you can imagine, there was high dispute over who would become the leader after Muhammad. Um, And and what kind of came out of that through a a series of a couple of different rulers, but the dispute ultimately led to the formation of two different groups of Muslims. The Sunnis, 10% of the Muslim world today, and the Shiites, you've heard of this, 90% of the Muslims that are, are present today. Okay, that is a very brief overview of of the history of islam now what i want to do is this i want to turn a corner and i want us to talk about i want us to explore the common beliefs of islam what are the common things that they believe what are the common things that they practice these can be broken down into if you're taking notes into two categories first i want to look at the core beliefs know this over the course of the 1300 years that islam has been in existence the, uh, of all the tribes, of all the different Muslim um, tribes and, and even nationalities, they have kept to these same um, five core beliefs throughout the history of Islam. 
So these are called the five pillars of the faith. The first one is this. It's, it's belief in Allah. Allah in Arabic, uh, the term literally means the deity. Muhammad's central message in a rampantly polytheistic culture, in a culture where many, many, many gods were being worshipped, was this. His central message was this. There is one true God. There's one true God. He was the one that, that Muhammad would say was revealed to Adam and to Abraham and to the prophets. The primary sin in, in Islam is this. It's called, it's called shirk. And what it means is this. It's, it, it means when you commit this, this is huge. It means that you're, you're acknowledging that there are other gods in addition to um, Allah. Christians uh, commit shirk when they worship Jesus as God or when they pray to Jesus or when they um, pray in Jesus' name or when they refer to Jesus as the Son of God. In Islam, you, you get to know God by understanding the different names for God. In the Quran, there are over 104 different names for God. Now, many of these we would most, actually, we would agree with. One's like he's holy. He, he's the creator. But then there are other names for God that reveal to us that there is a huge separation between how we as a Christian would view the character of God and how a Muslim would, would view the character of God. The difference between Christianity is, and Islam is, is, is that not that we both have one God. We both do. We both are monotheistic religions. The difference is this. The difference is the character of God. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Allah in the Quran is different than Allah or God. That's what that means in the Bible. Okay, number two. Their core belief number two is they, they believe in the prophets. Many of the prophets um, in the Bible are mentioned in the Quran. Stories of, 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 of Moses, of Jonah, Elijah, Job, uh, Noah, John the Baptist is mentioned in the Quran as a prophet. They identify 25 different prophets. Abraham's the first Jesus Christ is number 24. Number 25 is Muhammad. Muhammad is looked at in their religion as the seal. He's the last prophet. Uh, number three, the, the, uh, the third core belief of, of Islam is, is belief in angels and demons. Muslims believe in an active spirit world. Um, they believe, uh, many of them believe, that there are two angels that actually always sit on your shoulder. One is keeping track of your good works. One is keeping track of your bad works. They believe in an active spirit world. They believe in what is called a, a jinn or a, or a demon. Um, these jinn are believed to be controlled by Satan and they're responsible for much of the um, destructive activity that takes place on earth. Number four, Muslims believe a core belief of theirs is in the holy books. Muslims believe that the messages that the prophets, the, the messages of the prophets can be found in four primary books. The first one is the Torah, or the Torah. That's the message of, of, of Noah. The second one is the Zabur. It's the, the writing of, of David. It's the Psalms as we know them. It's the Injils number, number three. That's the, uh, the, the writings of Jesus. It's the New Testament. And then the fourth book that they would revere would be the, the Quran. That's the, the, the teachings of Muhammad, the book of Muhammad. Know this, the Torah. Uh, the Zabur and the Injil are all believed by Muslims to um, have been corrupted, um, as Fawad said. They believe then that the Quran was given to correct all of these other books. Now, in addition to the Quran, there's another very important book. It's called the Hadith. Now, this book is it's over 13 volumes long. And it's second only to the Quran. And what it is, it's all about the life of Muhammad. It's... um. It's sort of like the Proverbs on Muhammad. It gives them, them tools for practical living. Number five, the fifth core belief 
is the final judgment. Muslims believe that on the day of judgment, everyone will give an account. They believe that on the day of judgment, everyone will face, um, everyone will face judgment. No one will get out of it. They believe that God cannot be cheated. God cannot be cheated. You won't be able to, to pull a smooth one past him. This is a, a day that is, is honestly, it's feared. And you can understand why. Muslims believe in heaven. They believe in it's a physical place. It's a good place. They believe it's a place where you eat and drink and there's honey and wine and there's virgin women. And it's a place of pleasure. The description of hell, on the other hand, is one of fire and one of torture. Those are the five core beliefs of Islam. Now I want to move on to the five core practices of Islam, the five rituals of Islam. These practices are, are the ones that they mark how their religion is, is lived out. These, these rituals, know this, they're, they're not done just for fun. These are done with a, a very specific point in mind. These rituals are carried out continually in order to win favor with God, in order to, to in a sense, kind of get points with God because of the, they truly believe in the day of a final judgment. Number one, it's called the shahada. It's, called, it's the creed, and it, it means to testify. And here's how it goes. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. By saying this in the presence of a Muslim, you become a Muslim, if, if, you, mean what you're, if you mean what you're saying. That's how it works. Number two, so they, that's, a, that's a saying. That's their creed. That they say that all the time. Number two, uh, number, the second practice or second ritual, it's a prayer ceremony. Now, know that in, in, in Islam, prayer is seen much differently than maybe you think about prayer, maybe that I think about prayer. We tend to think about prayer as being interactive, right? It's a conversation. We're, we're trying to hear from God. We're speaking to God. In Islam, prayer is very, very ritualistic. It's a, it's a, it's a ceremony. It takes place five times a day. It takes place at sunrise, at noon, at sunset, and then it takes place again two hours after sunset. I remember being in Turkey, and, um, and I remember, I'll never forget this one morning, standing on the balcony of this apartment building, and, uh, you know, it was at sunrise, and I remember I, I was, uh, you know, woke up by um, this call to prayer that went out um, from this mosque, and you would hear this throughout the day, over and over and over, and what it's doing is this, is it's a reminder um, to the to people, hey, come, come and pray, pray, it's a, it's a call to pray. A Muslim needs to pray facing Mecca. There's a washing process called ablution that, they, um, that takes place in order to be purified in order that you can pray. So a Muslim needs to go through a process, and it's, um, you, know, you can kind of look into that if you like, but it's, it's quite a process in order to be ready to pray. A Muslim man, if he touches a woman, he's defiled. If he touches a Christian or a Jew, he would be defiled, and he would need to go back and, and go through that process again. The process of prayer, um, it's, it's um, very ceremonial. You recite something, you kneel, your knees hit the ground first, and then your palms, and then your head. Each prayer has a number of, of kneeling, some four, some three, some two. If a prayer is missed during the day, if you're at school or work and you can't get away, um, you need to make that up later in the day. I witnessed this very structured ritual while in a mosque in Turkey. Number three, um, the third practice of, of Islam is called Psalm, S-A-U-M. It's fasting during the month of Ramadan. 
Now, Ramadan is the the ninth month of the year on the Islamic calendar. It's 28 days long. This is very significant to Muslims. You you usually hear about this at least one or two times on the news during during this period of time. This is very significant for Muslims. During this time, from from sunrise to sunset, you are not allowed to touch food or water. At sunset, though, then, there are parties and great spreads of food. It's a celebration. This whole month is a celebration of the giving of the Quran to Muhammad. Before the sun rises, there's also feasting. In the Quran, this month is actually referred to as the month of feasting because it's a, it's a celebration. It's a, it's a party. I remember watching my friend Amir and right in the middle of wrestling season, cutting weight and everything else. And I remember watching him uh, strictly follow um, uh, the, the things that were laid out for the, the month of, of Ramadan. Number four, the fourth ritual is called zakat. It's the giving of alms. Uh, the, the, the percentage of, uh, of a Muslim's wealth that was given to those that were needy. If you're a Sunni Muslim, that should be 2.5% of your income. If you're a Shiite Muslim... It's 5% of your income. And then lastly, the fifth practice or ritual of a Muslim that they would, um, that they would seek to do is called a hajj. It's a pilgrimage to Mecca and to Medina. This is the highest thing that you could do. This is a big deal. Muhammad asked that every Muslim try to make this pilgrimage at least one time during their lifetime. 1.5 million Muslims make this trip each year. That thing in the center is, is called a, is called a Kaaba. And what they do is this, they go and that's inside of a big mosque, so they enter the mosque and then the desire is to go around the, the, the Kaaba seven different times and they want to touch the stone that's inside of that building and they want to touch it because they believe that, that Muhammad and Abraham touched that stone. This is a, a, a gathering of prayer and unity for Muslims. When you do this, when you take this journey, you're known as a haji, someone who has, who has done and who has completed a hajj. And that's a big deal. It sets you apart. You've done a hajj. You're a haji. Now, all of these rituals are done so that a Muslim can gain favor with God. I want to do, I want to spend the, the, just the last couple of minutes that we have here. And I want to talk to you about just a couple of observations as we look at these two religions, I want to, I want to talk about what are the, some of the most foundational differences between Islam and Christianity. Very foundational in nature. There are many, but these are maybe some of the, these are some of the biggest um, foundational differences. So the first one, if you're taking notes, jot down the deity of Jesus Christ. How the question, who is Jesus Christ, gets answered, marks the biggest, the greatest distinction between Christianity and Islam. In Islam, Muslims respect and they revere Jesus Christ. Jesus is considered to be a sinless prophet. While three times in the Quran, we see that Muhammad was actually forgiven. But in Islam, Jesus is regarded as a human prophet, as a, as a messenger of God, not a part of God himself. He's like Muhammad, he's like Moses, he's like Elijah. The distinction really plays out in, in, in the ramifications are huge in that, if, in that if Jesus was not God and if he was not crucified, which the Quran would say that Jesus was not crucified, if that's not true, then that means for you and I that forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ is not possible. It's a huge distinction. Now, while parts of the Quran refer to Jesus as a spirit from Allah, 
The idea that Jesus is, is God is rejected by Islam. It's blasphemy. In Christianity, the scriptures are clear. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the, the promised one, um, the, the promised one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. John the Baptist is a, is a prophet according to Muslims. Now, if you asked a Muslim, hey, well, what did John the Baptist do? I mean, what would your answer be to that? Your answer would be, he came to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah, for the chosen one. They would see that differently. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 14 The word Jesus Christ became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only coming from the father, full of grace and mercy. Hebrews chapter one, verse one through two. And and these verses should just kind of kind of reignite your heart. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in and in various ways. But in these days. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And then get this. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus, as part of the Trinity to the Christian, he is part of God. He is the God. He is God. Second, one of the biggest foundational differences between Christianity and Islam is the means to salvation. What is the process by which a person can be saved? Islam is a works-based religion. Um, uh, If you are a a good person, uh, you have a better chance of being saved. If you are not, you will not be saved. But if you ask a good Muslim, if you go up to a good Muslim and you say, hey, do you think you'll be going to heaven? A common response would be, I hope so. I, I hope so. I hope in the will of God. But it's unsure You might say, if God wills, I sure hope so, if God wills, but it's completely uncertain. This is a verse from the Quran that talks about the end. Those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they will attain salvation. But those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls in hell. They in hell will they abide. This is the picture. It's, it's this picture of a, it's a picture of a scale. You know, it's like, okay, does, at the end of time, does the good outweigh the bad? Does the good outweigh the bad? It's, it's that idea of, okay, did I, did I, did I make it? Did the good outweigh the bad at the end of my life? But the question still remains, how good is good enough? And if you ask a Muslim that, there's no answer to that. that. That's uncertain. Even in the Quran, we see that the Prophet Muhammad did not have, have certainty that he would be in heaven for all of eternity. This is a heavy burden for a Muslim. This is why as a Christian, as we talk about this even this morning, it is imperative that you and I, we have hearts for Muslim people and we desire to build bridges with them so that we can share with them the love of Jesus Christ. Christianity believes that God is holy. And and since he is holy, that something must be done with our sin. Our sin cannot go unpunished. We see this system demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. But if you read through the Old Testament, you see signs and you get glimpses here and there of what's it pointing to? It's it's pointing to a Messiah. There's someone coming. Christianity believes that you you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of yourselves. This is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. So why then do, you might ask, a Muslim might ask, why then would a Christian do good works? Why would you do good works? You do it and I do it out of response to Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. We do it as an act of worship. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Notice it said this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Meaning this, for the Christian, there is certainty in eternity. There is certainty in eternity. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that uh, that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, absolutely none, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Completely different. A Christian can have assurance of, of their salvation. John chapter 17, verse 3, it says, Now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's relational. This week, my awe and and my gratitude for Jesus Christ has has really grown a lot, I'll tell you. Um, And I hope that as you wrestle with the truths, and I hope that two things will happen. One, I hope that we'll, we'll be people of outreach. I hope that we'll be people that have hearts for Muslim people. But two, I hope even this morning, that your appreciation of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, I hope that it will increase. We're going to close by uh, just singing a song together in, in worship. And uh, so why don't you stand with me and I'll pray for us and then we'll, we'll sing. Lord, I, um, I just want to thank you this morning for your word and uh, the truth of it. And, and God, we just want to pray um, today specifically that the message of jesus christ would ring in the lives of us as a church lord we pray that we would be the kind of people that are marked by love and we pray that the gospel would be known um, through our lives lord we thank you for jesus christ and it's in his name that we pray amen